welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today, we're talking about both Triangle of Sadness and an overview of the Sundance Film Festival. Joining me today, someone who I think would share his pretzel sticks with me in a dire situation. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, what's going on? Oh, I'm doing well. You can have my pretzel sticks. I just had a very fine dinner of sea urchin salad and grilled octopus, actually. And I very much enjoyed it, unlike the passengers on the cruise ship in this movie we're about to uh, discuss. Got me confused for a second. I was like, wait, are we, are, did, are, did I invite Fred for a podcast about the menu? Uh, which I was going to kind of bring up a little bit in the context of this movie anyway. But uh, yeah, yeah, right. It, it, they are strikingly similar in some ways, aren't they? Yeah, I have to get into a little bit about that. But uh, Triangle of Sadness is the newest movie from uh, Swedish director uh, Ruben Ostlund. Uh, some might know him from uh, some other movies that kind of broke through a little bit. Uh, Force Majeure being one, which is the only one I've seen. Also The Square and uh, a couple others, but those are the ones that uh, made a little bit more noise over in the States, even if they are uh, they're foreign language films. This one is actually in English. It's divided into fair, three fairly distinct parts. Um, the first one, we kind of jump in in the middle of like this kind of bizarro, uh, you know, uh, different version of what feels like something kind of like Zoolander possibly, but more serious, uh, where we have a guy, we, 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 have, we have a guy named Carl, played by Harris Dickinson, who you might have seen last year in Where the Crawdads Sing, uh, Fred's fiance and Logan. Kings. And the Kingsman? Oh, I forgot that movie we talked about. So it's funny. Uh, so yeah, I talked about another, the, the, that, that movie, The Kingsman with uh, with Fred. And then he popped up in Where the Crawdads Sing, where I talked about with Fred's fiance, Logan, and our friend Kayla. Now he's here in Triangle Sadness. And he plays a model named Carl. And then he's his girlfriend is a model named Yaya, who's played by uh, Sharboy Dean, who uh, tragically passed away uh, later last year after the movie had already gotten released at Cannes, uh, had a sudden illness. But uh, she, she, play, she plays Yaya, a model and an influencer who's a bit more successful than Carl. Uh, we pick up with them, and uh, at a, uh, after one of her shows, they go to a dinner. They have a little spat about money, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But they they kind of make up enough to like take a free cruise that Yaya gets through her work. Uh, that's on a yacht with a lot of very rich people. Uh, the second hack of the movie takes place on the yacht, and uh, we'll get to the third part later. I I might actually suggest we do a spoiler section for the third section because that's not like this movie's still not widely available you got to pay to rent it but it's 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 oscar nominated that's part of why i wanted to have fred do this i i actually had more thoughts on the movie than i recalled given that we both haven't watched it in about three weeks but it got nominated for best picture and we're always complete this year on the rewind in all five or five years of the podcast we've talked about every single best picture nominee every year uh and done episodes on all of them so i wanted to complete that and fred was nice enough to help me uh in that venture so here we are talking about triangle of sadness and uh uh, we should, we, I should note that when they're uh, w w within that yacht portion of the movie, we meet a lot of other characters who then uh, do play a role in the third act. But the, the, these three acts are very distinct, even if they're obviously dealing with some very similar themes at all, uh, tangentially class related, because that's something that really interests Ruben Ostlund. Um, Fred, I'm curious because I, 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 I don't know. I don't I actually don't think I read your letterbox review on this, though. I think I remember your rating, but I'm, I'm more just want to start with the fact that like there have been a lot of movies, TV shows in recent years, uh, in recent, recent years within the last couple that kind of deal with this, like, all right, let's watch these rich people in a place and uh, either laugh at them, um, you know, satirize them, uh, you know, uh, just come to acknowledge how awful they are, watch them do crazy things. It's, it's a thing, uh, you know, whether it be something like the, something like the White Lotus, something like Glass Onion, like we just recently talked about. Uh, something like The Menu, a movie I know you're very fond of that came out last year. Uh, all of them are kind of dealing in these different, kind of dealing with these similar, uh, with similar subject matter in different ways, even if they're going, they're going about it or they're going about it in different ways. I saw Infinity Pool last night. There was a little bit of it in that. Succession is coming back. There's just a lot of rich people uh, 
behaving badly or exhibiting their worst traits content out there right now. I'm curious, do you think Triangle of Sadness, you know, found enough there to justify its existence amidst all of these uh, 1% content? Probably not, to be totally honest with you. Um, I will say, so the first thing that I uh, wrote in my review is uh, it actually won the Palm d'Or in Cannes. did, right. I so, forgot to mention that. So, so the big prize there, which uh, is kind of impressive. Second time, Ruben Ostland actually won the award. He already won it for the square mm-hmm. a few years ago, which is an interesting choice for them because um, a lot of times the movies that they choose in Cannes, there have been some exceptions. Uh, Parasite won a few years ago. Aren't really the kinds of movies that I enjoy. For the most part, they tend to be very sort of avant-garde, uh, artsy pictures um, that sometimes struggle to find an audience uh, because they are very narrowly targeted to a specific audience. Uh, and I will say, uh, for its uh, considerable faults, uh, Triangle of Sadness is an incredibly entertaining movie. In part because, again, it it does have a lot of similarities to films and TV shows from the last few years that found an audience. Um, Succession, incredibly successful on HBO. Uh, Same thing with The White Lotus. Um, That's a show that's consistently trending uh, whenever it's airing. Uh, Glass Onion, obviously a huge success for Netflix. You already mentioned The Menu, a movie that I really liked that came out last year. Uh, And I think that because of COVID, where a lot of us were at home and all of those rich assholes basically still got to continue their lives, uh, they still had fun. A lot of them still went on vacations uh, and acted like the rules didn't apply to them. There seems to be an unprecedented level of just disgust hmm. for the top 1% at this point that I think a lot of filmmakers are eager to milk. And Triangle of Sadness kind of fits into that as well. Um, so I think it makes perfect sense that a movie like that is coming out now. I think it even makes sense that it's nominated for awards. Uh, because if uh, Hollywood has uh, proven one thing over the years is that it lacks self-awareness hmm. and that they are very much part of the class that is being satirized in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, and we can get into more details on this later, I don't necessarily think that it distinguishes itself enough to really earn that last place in the best picture race that I probably would have given to other movies, to be honest. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely not one of my... 10 favorites of the year there there are plenty of others i could have uh i could have given that spot to and been very i, I mean my i really wish rrr had found a way into that best picture line i've just I, I feel like just a much more uh unique achievement and an impressive achievement and everything in most ways and it's but you know they the the, the and I, but i have no problem with like foreign films making it as a rule of thumb it seems like every year they want to they want to find one of those to like put up but like i guess rr would have fit the bill too uh, you know, not and not that there can't be more than one. It's just if you had to choose, if you made me choose between one of the two, I wanted it to be RR. But we're here at this one, and I, as I thought about it more, I did. I, I, I guess it left a little bit of a negative taste in my mouth, in so much as it wasn't my choice to sneak into that final tenth or ninth or tenth spot, depending on wh- whether or not you think of that or women talking. I think those were the like the the two like you know uh, ones that kind of squeaked in there. Though I did find more that I appreciated as I kind of went back and thought about it more in so much as I do think it is kind of going about its aims with respect to what whoever it's taking aim at in a slightly different way uh, and finding different little unique scenes within the movie to like, at least like kind of, de- at least kind of poke fun at these type of people in a way that doesn't, but like the thing is there are also moments in it where it's like, 
God, it just hit me over the head with it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, th- th- there's, there's a sequence uh, that takes up most of the second act of this movie uh, where uh, the, the, the boat's rocking, people are eating dinner. It's, uh, the, the, it's, it's not agreeing with them as a result of the boat rocking. And let's just say there is a lot of uh, sickness coming out of all sorts of body orifices. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and it, yeah. as well as different orifices of the ship itself. Uh, losing their integrity and w- w- without the ship actually sinking, but just like, you know, let's just say their, their sewage system had seen better days. And I, it just, it, for some reason, and I've, I've seen some people say that that's like the best part of the movie. And I'd be curious to see if you disagree with me on this. It just, it just, it's, it's like the one part where the movie lost me almost more so than the rest of it. It, it felt like I was like watching and I, as much as I appreciate it as a technical achievement, it just like, Oh man, like it's just, haha, I'm watching like these, these rich people like bathe in their own filth. And it felt very on the nose. And I, I kind of like rolled my eyes, whereas like I actually I actually felt like I found more to like in the first and third acts and a few isolated moments of the second act. And I was just like, oh, man, this is feels like you're just hit me over the head with something here, Ruben. I, I'm just not sure if I'm feeling this. And um, I'm wondering, like, what your reaction to that was versus like and, and if it was more if it was more positive or not, if there were other specific specific parts of this movie where you're like, hey, if, if the whole movie had been like this, I would have been more into it. I do think it's a very impressively staged and directed scene. Um, Undoubtedly, yeah, indisputably. Worth mentioning, Ruben Ostland also snuck in the best director race, actually, which I think a lot of people were kind of surprised by um, because there were that, that was a very uh, uh, hotly uh, contested category this year, and he still uh, found a way to get that fifth spot. I forgot. That. Yeah, that, that's another one where they've been like finding a foreign director a lot of years to do with like you know. Pavel Pavlikowski with Cold War and uh, Vinterberg with another round a couple years ago, like that. So not shocking, but like it's just interesting given that the you, you know uh, they, they it seems like he had had other movies before that were maybe even slightly warmer received. I feel like Force Majeure. Yeah, and I feel like the more obvious choice in that category this year would have been Edward Berger, the guy who directed All Quiet on the West. Right, without yeah, with just how yeah, with how that one racked up so many nominations. Yeah, I, I would have thought that would have been the more obvious choice, but um. I mean, that said, again, it is a very impressively done scene. It, I mean, it kind of makes you feel physically sick almost because oh, the yeah. screen is kind of like undulating and shaking as well. And you, you understand why everybody's all of a sudden feeling horrendous while they're eating their dinner. <laughs> um, and it, I, I, did, I did enjoy that uh, the captain uh, played by Woody Harrelson, uh, he's not eating any of that super fancy food. He is just eating a burger <laughs> and fries, which incidentally is the same meal that plays a very important role in the menu as well. And where, and yeah, and where, where every other food item in that movie is like similar to some of the stuff they're eating in this movie, probably. Yes, exactly. And it's kind of interesting, I guess, that they both serve as a symbol of uh, peasant food almost being uh, like more enjoyable and just uh, easier on the stomach than some of the fancy food that rich people like to eat and pretend to enjoy sometimes. Um, I get what you're saying, and I think that's a problem with Triangle of Sadness in general, that a lot of the satire is just a little bit too obvious, and I think a little bit too broad as well, where you have all of these characters on the cruise, and they all represent different aspects uh, of wealth and uh, affluence and decadence, and I think, and this is kind of what gets into what I mentioned earlier, where I said that I think out of a lot of those other movies and TV shows that came out that tackled similar themes, this is my least favorite. Mm. Um, you look at the menu, it's like the satire there is focused especially on the kinds of foods that rich people will eat and their pretentiousness and going to these nice restaurants. Uh, 
where you don't really even get like actual food on the plate anymore, but just like artworks. Um, and I, Glass yeah. Onion. Glass Onion is very specifically focused on like this like tech startup where the guy becomes a multi-billionaire and he can afford everything and manipulates a bunch of people. Um, and I think satire, it's very important for it to land properly that you don't overextend yourself and that it's still very clear like what you're really like poking fun at. And I think Triangle of Sadness kind of gets lost a little bit um, in that scene, yes, but I think even in general where it's a little unclear what Ruben Ostland is ultimately targeting here except just making fun of rich people. Yeah, and we haven't really talked about the menu a ton, uh, the two of us. I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about it, though, and I'd say one thing about the menu that, like, gave me a greater appreciation for it, and I don't remember who I was talking to it about, talking with it about. But, like, someone said, like, hey, think of it less as a movie about, like, making fun of the rich. Like, sure, making fun of foodie culture, but less a movie about being that pointed about the 1% and more about a movie about, like, an artist that, like, lost his inspiration when he reached a certain level or something like that. And, like, sure. that really recontextualized the movie for me and, like, you know, the idea of, like, what, what about a musician that, like, just has so much success that, like, doesn't really know how to, like, relate to regular people anymore or a comedian by that same token or something like that. And I, I enjoyed thinking about it from that perspective, whereas, like, here – yeah, I, it's just making fun of the rich and isolated moments. I just say, like, I can pinpoint some moments where I was like, oh, I like how you did that. That doesn't mean you necessarily, like, deserve an entire movie about this. Um, but, like, you know, let, let's just back up for a second. That, that, that first, because, like, I think that that, that first segment, uh, you have this thing where Yaya and um, Carl are arguing about money, and she, she kind of, like, expects him to kind of be the man and pick up this check, even though, like, he's apparently picked up the last few and she's more successful than him. And I think it's a really well-acted scene. It's very tense that you see them fighting later on in this uh, kind of back-and-forth thing across between an elevator door. Uh, it's a shot really interestingly. And also, like, I, I just thought it, it kind of got at the ways people kind of, like, different kinds of people feel about money in an interesting way. Uh, whether it be, like, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in situations before where it's, like, maybe you're with people that are, like, you know, just either of like make a lot more money than you but you're at a lunch or something and like someone wants to split the bill or, or or it's like you're just somewhere where it's like everyone else is like racked up a lot more on that bill and they suggest they split the bill and they're just not even thinking about it or something like that and because some people have so much money it, it doesn't even like really register that's hey this might not be as comfortable for someone else that's your whose presence whose presence you were in as it is for you and i thought it kind of like got at that kind of that uncomfortable but that's like it's such an uncomfortable subject to talk about and I just thought the way that that conversation built it, that they built, like it actually like really got at something and it didn't feel of a piece with the next two acts of the movie necessarily in, 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 in so many ways. And that I don't know if it, even know if it's so much making fun about them as just like, uh, you know, taking a different slice of life where money is ever present, but also uncomfortable. So yeah, it, it, is he really saying anything there or is he just kind of like reflecting on, a, a, you know, a reality of life back at you in an interesting way? And then it's like, then, then you move on to the next two and it's like, all right, well, that, that, that was something there. I, I, I liked a lot of what was going on there. Should that have just been a short film? Could, that could have just been a, a short film you watched in, in advance of the Oscars and like, it might've been put totally fine, you know? What I think works very well about that scene is that it's, it, it is quite relatable in some ways, even though, of course, I mean, they have they're part of like a class where money like takes on a different meaning than for a lot of other people because clearly they have quite a lot. And this is always really interesting uh, truism that there are more important things to life than money. But usually people who are well off tend to say that hmm. because they've never had to worry about it. 
And what I like very well about that scene is, regardless of whether you have a ton of money or not, I know it's the year 2022, hmm. but in a lot of relationships, and I'm sure uh, guys can identify with this, there's always that weird moment uh, when you first start going on dates where there comes a question where should the guy pick up the check? Hmm. Or at one point, should there be a serious conversation that you should probably split the bill or maybe the girl can occasionally pick it up as well? Um, because, I mean, we, we're still kind of trapped in this traditional mindset that we think the guy should be the one paying the check at the restaurant. Or at least must, at least must offer first. Yes, we must offer first. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's, that's a really interesting uh, way in that scene where you have uh, this sort of underhanded communication where he knows that she expects him to pay, even though she said that she would pay that night. So he's kind of passive aggressively trying to make it clear that he would like her to pay, but he doesn't mm. explicitly say it. And she so picks up on that. Into, so that evolves into a whole separate argument. Uh, and I think it's a very great introduction to them as a couple, because right after that, uh, they go home and the driver of, I think it's a cab on Uber, I don't remember specifically, but yeah. the guy tells him, like, you need to figure this stuff out. You need to have a conversation with her or she's going to keep taking advantage of you like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, we eventually get to a point in the movie where it becomes very clear that that is uh, exactly how it ends up playing out. So, um, yeah. And, and, and also, like, on top of that, it makes it clear that, like, they don't have real money. Like, they have whatever model money is. Uh, they're also influencers on the side. But, like, they get to go on this cruise ship because, like, mainly because Yaya is an influencer and influencers get to go on free trips sometimes. So it, it gives you interesting context for like who these people are and how they might be good. Like, I don't want to say window dressing, but it's like they, they can fit in on the surface in this place, even if like they are going to be on a whole other level of uh, on, on a whole lower level of wealth from like everyone they're about to interact with. So it's interesting context for these other people that you wouldn't otherwise have with, 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 with like a really well-acted, interesting scene that's dealing with all these, you know, uh, you know, these modern questions of dating. And I, I, I so I, I kind of appreciate that in isolation, but I can kind of see how it's like, you know, I, I could hear an argument for like why that's the most well done, but also kind of a part of the movie, but like also kind of feels extraneous to what he's trying to do overall. Cause I, I think he's doing something a lot more specific there than he is in the rest of the movie. To and it's it, only about two characters, which also yeah. makes a big difference when it's so focused on just two people. And that's kind of the problem in the rest of the movie. You introduce so many characters and you can do that in The White Lotus because you have six, seven, eight episodes to work with. And everybody kind of gets their allotted time to make sure that they're, the characters are complex enough to understand why they're being made fun of. But in a movie like Triangle of Sadness, you just don't have that time. So a lot of these characters are going to become shortchanged and it's not going to be entirely clear what it really is that Ruben Ostland is aiming for uh, yeah. in his sense of humor there. Yeah, and I would say by that line of thinking, like I could see if he had just focused on any one of these and made feature like films out of any of of any of them, like maybe it, it, they just really work. Though I will say, because it hops around a lot in that second act, like to different people, you don't really remember anyone's name necessarily, even if you might remember who that person is or what they're about. And so there's there, there, there's this different sequences there that like I appreciate in isolation, but I would say that combined with the big set piece we already talked about, I just don't really know if it flows together all that much. But like there is a moment in this movie that made me laugh more than just about anything in the movies last year. And I watched this at just like sitting sitting on my iPad, basically walking around and pacing in my apartment to get in some exercise while I had COVID. And I still might have laughed harder than anything because they're going around this dining room ship at a, this dining room uh, at this uh, this dining room that they keep going back to basically up even up until the big set piece of this cruise ship and 
I and the, you see them different people, different people having different interactions talking. And honestly, at this point, I can't remember who it is, but I, it, 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 actually, I think it is uh, Yaya and Carl at one point are sitting next to this older couple and they seem nice and really genteel and all that. And though at some point it becomes very apparent that they're rich and this one of them earnestly asked them, Oh, like, so, uh, I think, and I think maybe at some point they've talked about a lot of the wealthy things they have or whatever, but they seem really nice and genteel and all that. And at one point they said, he said, Oh, what do you do? And they and then just very matter of factly, this like, honestly, octogenarian British couple, I think says back to them, Oh, uh, we, we design landmines and hand grenades, hand grenades and sell them to militaries. And it's like, so matter of factly. And I, and I don't know why I just like lost it. It was just kind of honey. It's like, these are the kind of rich people that you're rubbing shoulders with. It's like, yeah, someone that's basically just, you know, like, you know, arming, arming countries around the world. Like, I, I don't know why it was just, I, I think it was because it did, it felt like it was so like such a low key, like, like quiet joke that like just cut so deep. Whereas like almost everything else in this movie was just like, not like that. And just so much more like boisterous and heavy handed. And this was just like such a quiet, like drive by sniping of a joke. I really, really appreciated that. And like, in theory, I, I, I could have had space for more moments like that, even if it was coming from the mouths of characters who we didn't know all that well, just because like, all right, I get it. You're kind of getting it like what these, who these rich people are, even if we're not getting to know them personally, we're getting to know the type of person that's here in an interesting way. That, that's the one, that's one moment I wanted to highlight. Another one was when at one point, one of the, one of the patrons of the boat decides to, uh, decides that they, she, she's actually very generous. She's not just like a wealthy, uh, a, a wealthy, obnoxious person. She cares about the crew and she makes the whole crew go for a swim and she thinks she's doing them a favor. And it's like one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever seen, but it's like the kind of entitled behavior you might expect from someone like that. I'm wondering, were there other moments you did find within that, within that part of the movie that you're like, all right, I kind of appreciate what he's getting at here like I did, or did you roll your eyes at a lot of those moments? No, I thought a lot of those moments worked in isolation. Mm -hmm. There's another scene that I thought was really funny where uh, Yaya is uh, eating oh. eating pasta and oh. her boyfriend is taking pictures of her, even though she's not actually eating it because mm. I think she says she's uh, gluten she eats gluten free or something like that, or she doesn't <laughs> eat carbs or something like that. Uh, where it's like, yeah, gotta gotta stage that for the Instagram page. Yeah, I think I liked was the person saying that kept insisting that they clean the sails even though there were no sails. <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, uh, the captain eventually says, yeah, no, we'll, we'll get those cleaned. Absolutely. We'll, we'll definitely make sure to take care of that. Yeah, no, I, like, I think a lot of these like smaller like interactions between the characters are very enjoyable. I, I also include appreciated the inclusion of that couple that made their money off of uh, landmines and weapons and, uh, because it's fitting for Ruben Ostlin to include characters like that because he's Swedish. And one of the most famous Swedes in history is Alfred Nobel, who himself uh, was actually uh, a weapons manufacturer. He built dynamite. His stuff was used in wars all over the world until he realized that maybe that's not the legacy he wants to leave behind. And then he donated all of his money uh, for the Nobel Peace, for the Nobel Prizes uh, and for the betterment of humanity. And obviously that couple, th they never had that epiphany. They just think that uh, these annoying it's, it's people just, it's just a way to make a living. making it so difficult to uh, keep making those landmines. And... Uh, <laughs> What a, what, what a hassle that is for them. Um, so, no, I think the writing, like the writing is sharp. Like I, I laughed, like I said, it's a very entertaining movie. No question about that. And that's what makes it a more unique uh, choice uh, to win the Golden Palm at Cannes because a lot of movies that they usually pick uh, aren't necessarily uh, that uh, audience friendly, I would say. I mean, I think, do you um, say the golden, the, the, what did you call it? The golden what? Is golden the, Palm. 
That's what it means in English. The oh, okay. I, I, was, I was like, wait, did you get confused with Venice for a second with the golden wine? I didn't actually know that was the translation. So yes, you taught me the, something. The golden palm, the palm d'or. Yes, that is uh, what that means. <laughs> but yeah, but, 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 but like we said already, I do think that when you like form all of these little tidbits together into like a more like holistic picture of what the movie tries to do, um, there just needed to be, I guess, some a more concise and clearer vision of what the message is, except, haha, look at those rich people uh, going on a cruise and getting their comeuppance uh, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think it's funny. I think if I recall, and you might remember this better than me, I think someone kind of referenced in a, on a on a podcast I was listening to earlier. I think I think one of the one of the one of the elderly people in that couple, when the pirates raid the ship, end up picking up a hand grenade, and that's and and that is what leads us to the third act. Which I mean, I, I would almost say this jump off right now if you don't want to hear anything a spoiler beyond what I just said. Because I, I do think the third act of this movie kind of is, is 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 such a departure. It almost in a, in a way deserves its own section, and you know you can almost kind of get through it, get through what we just talked about without really having anything all that important spoiled for you. But I want to talk about the third act separately, Fred. I, I do think what's interesting about the third act of the movie is that like I feel like he does actually finally get a little more focused on what he wants to say in an interesting way, and so throughout the movie, someone that we didn't necessarily even talk about that much yet. Uh, is a, a character named Abigail played by Dolly DeLeon, who I think is a little bit in the background for the first two acts of this movie. And uh, there, there's a bomb, there's a bombing on the ship by some pirates and certain people are able to get on like lifeboats or whatever and uh, get out to this island, except now they really don't have anything beyond the provisions that were on this lifeboat. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, Abigail, who again is very much in the background for the most of this movie, uh, she, she all of a sudden turns out she's the only one that can start a fire and catch a fish. And she becomes like the de facto leader of these people. Where I should say, Abigail was like it was like a maid, uh, was who uh, on the ship and was answering the toilet to, manager. I think she's. Oh, I I I forgot that. Yeah. She's answering to one of the other. Um, she's she'd been answering to one of the other. Uh, like kind of staff managers who did make it to the island too, and is a little figure, confused by the fact that like, hey, now that they're on this island with the ship is sunk, like she doesn't actually have control over abigail anymore abigail comes to like be like the leader of this group because of the power she wields because of her skills that she just has and uh it's kind of it's i think it's i mean maybe not the most subtle way of going about it but like at at the same time is saying like hey you know while some people at a certain point might think like hey you know if i were in power things would be different uh i think ruben oslin is positing that like hey that's not as simple as it seems power corrupts people can actually you know who think they would be much more altruistic if, if they actually reach that station in life eh, maybe not gonna maybe maybe a little easier said than done if it comes to the per, kind of person you're gonna be if you reach that status uh so and i think uh i should say i think i i, I most people a lot of people thought dolly Dulian was gonna get an oscar nomination and it would would not have been undeserved if she had she didn't but like I think that she really anchors the movie with that. It's it's that powerful that like people felt comfortable. People felt comfortable really predicting that and going there. And I think she, I think it's it's really if you're gonna you know maybe have a like kind of a heavy handing message, heavy handed messaging with with something like that to your movie, you may as well ha- have that delivered by someone giving this kind of powerful performance of someone that just runs roughshod over this group of people and you know. Uh, in 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 the way she does, uh, Fred. Uh, what what did you ultimately think about like where this movie headed? Even if it sounds like you were a little iffy on it up to that point. Yeah, I think there are a couple of very interesting things that happen in that. I mean, mm-hmm. the final act is maybe uh, like 
uh, selling it a bit short because it is about, I think, 40, 45 minutes of the movie almost. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. that island. Sure. Um, I, I think it's, well, first of all, I would probably be the first to die on that island because I don't have any of those survival skills. That Me neither. I, I, I'd be right there with you. Absolutely. So uh, I was very sympathetic, I guess, uh, to them suddenly uh, not really being able to help themselves anymore. And again, I think that is what being rich and being sort of uh, detached from the rest of the world means a lot of times that uh, your money and your nice Rolex watch is suddenly totally worthless when you're out in the middle of nowhere uh, on an island and you need these raw survival skills that uh, most people nowadays no longer have. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Abigail, uh, she can, she holds all the cards now. And there is that really interesting scene where uh, I think she catches an octopus and uh, they try to divide it up. Um, mm -hmm. And she takes the entire half of the octopus to herself and then she distributes the rest of it to everybody else. Um, and they seem kind of confused initially that uh, hmm. they're getting so uh, little uh, of the she octopus. Says, she says, I did all the work. Yeah, she did all the work, obviously, right? I mean, they wouldn't be getting anything at all if it wasn't for her. Um, and, and I think that was a very effective way to simply demonstrate that uh, now uh, the roles have dramatically shifted, obviously. And also, of course, now that Abigail wields that kind of power and now that she has that spot uh, in the penthouse, so to speak, in the ivory tower where she is all of a sudden the person who gets to make the rules and everybody else are her underlings. Mm -hmm. Once you get to that point, it's really hard to give up that power again. Yeah. Uh, because why would you want to essentially go back to cleaning toilets once you have, uh, now you have that respect, now you have that authority that has really eluded you your entire life. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting way to play with those dynamics where uh, people suddenly have to essentially like get bossed around by her because otherwise, I mean, there's no food for them and she really gets to dictate terms to them uh, for a considerable time. Yeah. And we should also note she, uh, you know, I mean, it's a little different than, you know, corporate malfeasance because it's not an official position, but she probably does, you know, exert some influence uh, with respect to kind of somewhat extorting a sexual relationship out of Carl. Though at the same time, I think Carl does have some agency as well, where we talked, we kind of referenced earlier how he does kind of like he's standing up for himself a little bit and kind of like, you know, leaving Yaya behind a little bit, though it's like at the same time. But is he though? Because I get, I'm getting the sense that he also does it so Yaya can be provided with food because there's that scene on the beach where like he gives her, I think, the pretzels that he right, earned. That, 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 was like, that. So, that was like soon after, like one of the first times he kind of like, you know, uh, ventured into the lifeboat with Abigail. But uh, I, yeah, I, I, I never really took it as anything malicious, even if Yaya was kind of talking about it that way. It's funny because you were saying earlier how the cab driver is giving them advice and like a way, yes, he is kind of going off on his own, but like hard to really know, but we're kind of putting Yaya's shoes a little bit. Where we're not totally sure how to feel about it uh, either, but like, yeah, it's, it's just, but Abigail, it does certainly seem to kind of like be corrupted by like everything. And it's, it's also, also, also a little bit funny that like, you know, uh, I think the, Am I correct in recalling that one of the guys that ended up on the ship was that Russian was was the Russian guy that like you know uh, who, who like prided himself a little bit on his conservative conservatism? We didn't really talk about him and Woody Harrelson's like you know back and forth about Woody Harrelson's guy being a Marxist and him being like this uh, conservative Russian or or whatever. But like um, you know it's it's funny that he ends up on the island and you know I think 
like sharing of food and stuff like that is a way that people use to sometimes cynically talk about socialism. So I don't want to say, I'm, I don't want to say I'm not being at least somewhat glib when I say this, but it is kind of funny. Like you mentioned that octopus scene that like all these really wealthy one percenters kind of wanted someone to share the wealth, you know? Uh, I, I don't think that I, I don't, I don't necessarily think uh, Ruben Oslin is trying to hide the ball where he is at on there anyway, but it is, he, he, he's getting out what he wants to say. And uh, we kind of see Abigail again, just like, really, really kind of relish this role as other people really struggle with it. And I, it's, it's just funny to like, see this, see this order fall into place. It's, it's just like, it's, it's an interesting, you know, take on all of the, all, this whole entire class thing and how he decides he's going to turn it upside down. And it doesn't necessarily, it, it just doesn't feel unearned. You know, I think a lot of that credit goes to Dolly DeLeon, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's just very focused storytelling, even though, yeah, you're still juggling around a decent amount of characters, but at the same time, it's, it's all in service of something that I think really just like makes sense that what's going on with this character. You know, I, 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 I just think it's probably the, I do think it's probably the, like the most well-done version of the movie or well-done portion of the movie as far as like still incorporating his thesis. Right. Because now all of a sudden everybody's interests align to an extent. Mm. You didn't really have that before, but when everybody's on an Island uh, starving and stranded, I mean, people, I mean, a lot people are willing to do quite a bit for their own survival and again, now that money is no longer important because it's not going to buy you anything out in the middle of nowhere, um, everybody is kind of reduced to the same position and the people who are going to be in charge are the ones who can contribute to their survival. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think it's interesting how the movie sort of brings everybody to that same level and people distinguish themselves just by their abilities in the moment as opposed to wealth they might have accumulated throughout their lives or even by inheritance. Yeah. Um, Speaking of being in the middle of nowhere, we come to learn uh, later on when Abigail and uh, Yaya go out for a hike, maybe they're not so much in the middle of nowhere. It's like, hey, there might actually be a resort built into this island, and they're kind of looking at it from their own perspectives, and uh, you know, Yaya is, is just kind of, kind of staring at it when Abigail is convinced her to stop for a second and take this all in. And uh, we see Abigail uh, sneak up on her. Uh, with a rock, right as you know, Yaya is speculating on, oh, what can we do when we get back to civilization? Maybe you can work for me, Abigail. And uh, we, we see her hesitate for a second, and then we cut to black. Fred, what did did, did you did you have uh did you have a reading on this and uh at, at all beyond like, hey, yep, she's she, she's just gonna kill her. Like, I mean, it's left to be a little ambiguous, but like, I don't really know if it so much matters as to like what she ultimately ended up doing, so much as the fact that she was seriously wanted to do what she was wanted to do i mean the problem is of course that eventually they are going to find out that they're not in fact in the middle of nowhere even if she does end up killing yaya because there's also that scene right before where the woman who had a stroke who can only say that one line in german mm -hmm. uh comes across a beach vendor who's selling mm -hmm. a lot of these like knockoff like watches and uh other stuff um but you she remember, can't you, i forgot that was german do you, do you do you have any recollection as to what she was saying Yes, because that's where Ruben Ostlund's like heavy-handed symbolism comes into play again. Um, mm. Because the sentence that she keeps saying over and over again is in den Wolken, which means in the clouds. So mm. she's literally unable to communicate to the sky because she's like in the clouds. She's like so high above him that she is unable to essentially get on the same page as him and talk to him because... Uh, She's like up there and disconnected from normal people. And again, like some of that stuff was, was a little unfortunate because I think that you don't necessarily need to 
have somebody literally spell out that message in order to get across what is happening in a lot of those scenes where people who come from different backgrounds and who have a different uh, status and different like amounts of wealth uh, in their bank account that there is just a very different experience that they have about perceiving the world but 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 again i kind of think that on one hand it's nice that they ended it in an ambiguous way because we can kind of piece it together ourselves what would eventually happen anyway even if she does end up killing yaya that she's really just prolonging the inevitable yeah i think we can assume she she she, she was she's competent enough as a survivalist that she she wasn't going to let him start but you know there probably would have been other people wondering on there at some point like the vendor yeah eventually exactly someone that so, spoke and then someone that spoke the language interact would, would would come up would come upon another person that spoke their language yeah, that would just have been a matter of time, probably. But but on the other hand, I don't know. I also kind of like conflicts to get resolved. And this really was the big conflict that the movie was building towards for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, like, can like is there a way for them to sort of re-enter civilization now that the whole order has been so dramatically altered? Uh, and, and I don't know. I think it's always a little lazy when you end it open-ended and don't actually provide a clear answer to your audience to make to sort of like tell them how you feel about the matter. There are, yeah, there are other ambiguous endings. I like, I, I generally like them when done well, though I can see that argument how like maybe something like this like feels like a little bit of an easy way out. It is a bit of a cop out. Yeah. But, but, but then again, I also don't necessarily know like how you resolve this movie if you don't do it that way, because obviously you need to have like a sort of big exclamation point at the end. Um, some kind of punchline, because really the whole movie is sort of this like big joke that Austin <laughs> is telling us. Yeah. And I don't know how else you necessarily achieve that, except Harris Dickinson like running through the jungle in panic, <laughs> trying to stop whatever is happening there. But right. again, I'm not entirely sure that this is necessarily the best way to get your message across if you end it on such an open-ended note where you don't draw a conclusion that you let your audience know how you feel about a certain thing. That's fair. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I don't have a lot of pushback for you. Like I said, I, there are plenty of things in this movie I enjoyed in isolation, but I can also see how like, yeah, maybe it just doesn't tie together as well as it otherwise could, but yep, yeah, it's, uh, it's a best picture nominee and it will have that distinction, you know, forever. Fred, anything else about triangle sadness you want to touch on before we jump to the Sundance? No, except you really should be watching the menu, which is on HBO max now. And that's mm. a movie I really like that deals with similar themes. So go check that <laughs> out and go watch triangle of sadness too. When it, uh, hit some streaming service. Like I said, it's enjoyable. It's entertaining. Uh, I just think there were better movies this year that would have deserved. It's a shame. Some people, some people just thought because the people like the menu did pretty well financially for a movie of that size that people would want to support it. And uh, it might make, so I saw some people predicting, you know, maybe it would get a screenplay nomination. Didn't happen. You know, you could, someone could argue, you know, uh, the men like one could, I don't know if anyone ever thought it was going to get a best director nomination, but one could argue that like, you know, triangle sadness got nominated for a couple of things that might, the menu might've been, uh, you know, a better candidate for, uh, but I've admittedly not seen the whale, but that is the movie Hong Chao should have gotten her nomination for the mm. menu. That was a really funny performance. There, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, she, she's good in the whale too, though. I, I, so I, I would have been fine with it either way. It just, I, it would have been a cooler nomination if it had come for something uh, like the menu. Cause just, you don't always see movies like that highlighted, but uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I definitely agree. Check out the menu uh, and 
Uh, check out Triangle Sadness just to, you know, you know, be, be, be a best picture completist if they make it easy to watch. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about Sundance, Fred, because uh, we're recording this on uh, the first day of February and the, the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah just concluded a few days ago. Shout out to them. They made it easier to like follow along for the for the amateur critics like you and I who, you know, uh, don't have the credentials or the, you know, actually, if I ever had the time, I could I, I, I could afford it. It would just be like a ridiculous thing to do at this stage in life, a bucket list thing is for me to actually be there in person it is always taking place around my birthday which is january 22nd uh and it's just like yeah god it's crazy expensive to probably stay there it's like i I just don't know if i could really justify it until i'm like you know maybe retired i don't know but like i would like to go there in person one day but thanks to the folks that put on the festival for like actually making it possible for us to partake by we doing so virtually fred and i and also for doing as as an a la carte thing where you can buy tickets for $20 a piece. Cause like, uh, you know, at, well, we're also recording on a day where South by Southwest announced a lot of the people, uh, the, the movies that are going to be competing there in March, but like they make it. So it's like, you can only buy like one, like full pa- full festival pass at a time. Basically. It's like, even if you go there in person, like you got to at least like buy a wristband, which is cool. If you like have the time and money to just wander around the festival for five straight days, like not very many people do. Sundance lets you just buy tickets to whatever movies you see you pay a little bit of a surplus. You're paying $20 you're getting early access and uh, the experience of seeing something on the front end, like Fred and I were. So Fred did it for about Fred and I overlapped on a couple of movies, but we also did uh, things on about like, you know, five, five movies uh, or, or we, but we overlapped on a couple, but we also saw some stuff the others didn't. So we were just going to figure we'd give a, give a couple minutes to some of these and uh, say what you have to look forward to. Cause we're going to put this one. We've already recorded a podcast on one of these, but we just wanted to like, you know, kind of put it out there. What our thoughts were, what we thought would be worth seeking out once these movies get distribution. And that one I mentioned that we already talked about Fred uh, was fair play, which is one of the ones that already has distribution. It got bought by Netflix for $20 million. And it's a movie that you and I, I think, both like. So people will be able to listen to us talk about it in more detail at some, at some point. But just if we want to kind of get people the, you know, a little bit to look forward to, to and, and why they should be paying attention to when Netflix has a release date. Do you have like, a, do you have more of an elevator pitch for why people should check it out as opposed to the long form discussion we've already had? Yeah, I'm convinced that that movie is going to easily find an audience because, uh, well, that's why Netflix bought it, because I'm mm-hmm. sure uh, they think they can sell it uh, to their subscribers. Uh, and there's, there's good reason to believe that uh, it has two young, charismatic uh, lead performers in uh, Phoebe uh, Denevora and Alden Ehrenreich, who both uh, really acquit themselves excellently here as a young Wall Street couple. Uh, they work at a hedge fund together, um, which is not allowed to have a personal relationship when you work at that company, but they still do. Uh, and then one of them gets a promotion and it throws a massive mm-hmm. wrench into their relationship because all of a sudden there are tremendous conflicts of interest uh, in their personal and professional lives. Um, And it's a really great uh, and intense uh, depiction on, um, well, work-life balance for one, uh, but also gender dynamics in the workplace, uh, gender dynamics at home when one person is more successful professionally than the other. uh, And it takes some really interesting and really wild turns. Um, And I'm convinced uh, that this is a movie that people are, really going to enjoy when it comes out and one that I think is fairly easy to recommend across the board yeah. uh, for most people, which isn't always the case for all the movies at Sundance. 
Yeah, and, I, and I'll just say, like, I think you use that term across the board, and that was the only other thing I was going to add to what you said is that I think it's impressive that it has broad appeal because if you hear Fred and I throwing around terms like hedge fund and Wall Street, and you're like, ah, I don't know if like finance is really for me. I don't know a lot about that stuff. I, I would just uh, note to everyone that listening that hasn't had a chance to watch it yet that like it does a really good job of like you know putting you in this world enough that you understand what what the characters are doing and what successes when they're having successes and when they are having failures when they're taking a risk. And it, 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 you're able to pick up on those broader points, even if you don't know a lot of the, the financial jargon. It's really good. At, uh, and and I, the actors get some credit for that, too. Again, Fred mentioned they're really good. Um, Eddie Marson plays the head of the head fund, and it gives a very, very intriguing uh, mannered performance, I would say. And I and I recommend it if you have any interest at all in just like, you know, watching young people be, really, be in a competitive field and the tensions that can uh, bring up. Uh, Fred, do you mind if I just do a little bit of rapid fire for a couple of the other ones that you've seen that I haven't? Uh, the, that I've seen and that you haven't or that you've that, seen? That, that I've seen and you haven't. Uh, All right. Because yep. no, no, right. there's, there's only one other one we've both seen, and I don't know if – I don't think either of us liked it that much. I'll save it for the end. Uh, I'm I, I'm curious because I, I, I you had a little bit more time on your hands the week that all these were coming out. I can only do so many. I barely squeezed in with the last one under the wire. And the, the one I wanted to ask you about that I was most intrigued by that I just kind of missed out on buying a ticket for that. There, there are a couple others that I just don't think they had virtual tickets for. Um, that like, so, so I, I'm excluding those when I say this is like the one I was most exciting for. There was one, uh, a Nicole Hall of Center movie with Julia Lee Dreyfus that I'm that, that I'm I'm forgetting the name of right now, but like, but like I'm really excited for because I like Nicole Hall of Center and I like Julia Lee Dreyfus and Enough Said, which is a great movie. People should find that. They got another movie coming out this year. They called, um, yeah, that, that one's called You Hurt My Feelings. Uh, so I was excited for that. I'm excited for Aileen, the one with Anne Hathaway and um, and Thomas and McKenzie. But like, because those weren't as easily available or I missed them, the one I was like most like regretted not buying. One it. more that I want to add, because I know you like this director as well, the new John Carney movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Hell yeah, people watch Sing Street and watch once and watch, um, you know, um, begin again. And then, and then, you know, he has a new movie coming out, support John Carney. Uh, so yeah, those were ones I just missed. So the, the one that like I could have bought a ticket for that is held off for because I knew I wasn't gonna have enough time was Magazine Dreams because I'm a big Jonathan, Jonathan Majors fan. And it seems like the prevailing thought coming out of this movie where he plays apparently a bodybuilder was that like incredible, incredible performance, but people were kind of like mixed on the overall quality of the movie. Did you come down, Fred, more a little bit on the consensus there, or did you actually seem to maybe like the movie more than the average critic? Yeah, so first of all, uh, good luck finding five better performances than Jonathan Majors in this really? movie uh, this year. Yeah, th that's going to be a struggle. I think that if this movie is promoted correctly, that's going to be a role that gets Oscar buzz throughout the year. Uh, just a tremendous physical performance and just very anxiety inducing too, because this is a character who's clearly not in a good place, uh, both physically and mentally. Uh, his name is Killian Maddox and he's an amateur bodybuilder. And I mean, even though he obviously has a, uh, a tremendous physique that he puts a lot of work into, part of that also entails destroying his body where he takes steroids. Uh, he eats 6,000 calories every day. There are a few scenes in the movie, actually, where you literally see him order a bunch of food and it's really just quite intense and uncomfortable to watch. And it's just a very immersive uh, character study that I think a lot of people are going to find disquieting because there are some scenes in there that are really just disturbing in the way uh, how he reacts uh, to certain triggers in his life, uh, where he gets violent, where he erupts on people. 
there is a, a date that he goes on uh, with uh, a lady he works with at the grocery store played by Haley Bennett. Uh, that might be one of the most uncomfortable dates I've seen in a movie in quite some time. Uh, this is not an easy watch for two hours. I will say that. Um, it's directed by a guy named Elijah Burnham, um, whom you may know. He directed a movie about five years ago that had Timothy Chalamet in it called Hot Summer Nights. Uh, that was also kind of dark and bleak in some ways and showed a character spiraling out of control and just ending up in a really dark place by the end. It's funny because both Timothy Chalamet and Jonathan Majors were in the movie Hostiles also, which, funny, which came out in like around the same time as Hot Summer oh, Nights. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Cooper movie. Yeah. Yeah. The- <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot they were both in there. I remember Tim- Timothy Chalamet, but oh, wow. Yeah, but um, I-, I actually, so it took me a while to really figure out my thoughts on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I initially gave it three and a half stars. I bumped it up to four a few days later because the movie stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while I do think that it doesn't necessarily nail the ending, um, and it left me with some questions that I really would have liked the movie to answer, um, it's just a really like intense character study that I think people are, people are going to struggle with to an extent, but that's going <laughs> to put Jonathan Majors uh, on a whole new level that we may not have seen him uh, wow. before. I can't say I'm excited to watch it after that pitch, but I'm excited to watch him and like, see if I can just appreciate him irrespective of, of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. Out of this world. All right, Fred, next one, uh, a little prayer, uh, which I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a bit, I'm, 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 I'm a big uh, Jane Levy fan kind of in that. Like I like, it, I'm fascinated by her and that she's like kind of cut her teeth on sitcoms and then like then did horror movies and then did Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It's just like seems like she's a pretty versatile actress and uh, David Tritharian's also in this. Uh, and what 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 can you tell us about A Little Prayer and why that one resonated with you? Because it looked like you gave it a pretty good review. Yeah, and I actually think so. It wasn't really one of the more popular movies at the film festival. Mm-hmm. It didn't necessarily get a ton of buzz, but critics who saw it really liked it. For the most part, uh, it got very strong reviews, even though it's really a very low-key kind of movie um, made on a shoestring budget. It's set in Winston-Salem, um, just a small handful of sets. Uh, and it's really about um, a family of, yeah, well, a family that lives in North Carolina. David Strathairn, uh, he plays um, the family patriarch, essentially, who uh owns his own business. He employs a lot of veterans. He's a veteran himself. So is his son. And the movie is really focused on his relationship with his daughter-in-law, which is kind of an unusual uh, relationship of characters in a movie. Uh, But it really kind of leads to a fascinating point where David Strathairn's character comes to find out some things about his son that he's really uncomfortable with and that kind of forces him to reckon with the possibility that he may not have done a very good job as a father raising him, um, which is an interesting contrast because he is by all accounts a decent guy, clearly very invested in his family, soft-spoken, um, has some worldviews and opinions that uh, are probably the kinds of worldviews and opinions a veteran living in North Carolina would have who is in his late 60s, early 70s. Uh, so his politics aren't always necessarily up to speed with what we would like to see. Um, but I think that adds some very interesting layers here when they have to deal with some uh, really sobering and uh, devastating conflicts that come up later and some choices that have to be made. Um, and I think it addresses these themes very honestly and in ways that will ring true for a lot of viewers. Interesting. Uh, I'm not convinced yet that this is really going to find an audience because it is so low key. 
Uh, but I do think that if you get a chance to watch this, people will take away something from that movie. Seems like one that like might just end up on a small, a small, smaller streamer at some point, but like, or just like, you know, get put quietly somewhere and maybe not get a bunch of fanfare. I can't, maybe don't see anyone and anyone giving this like the, a massive promotional push but like i i'm intrigued by seeing a different version of david Strathairn. i think he's a very good actor but seeing him put in an uncomfortable position like that is something that i can't say i've like seen him do a lot so i, I will definitely check that one out because i like i like the talent involved tremendous uh, tr- really really good performance uh, that he gives in this movie and it really is one of the more sort of genuine sundance releases which the festival has been all about since it got started just to focus on small affair low budget fair uh, that is really sold by the scripts and the performers in them. And A Little Prayer really feels like in the mold of those traditional Sundance releases. Yeah. Uh, next, last one that you saw that I didn't, All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt. Uh, that one, uh, I feel like it was a little buzzy at times, but it's looking like it didn't get like the strongest reviews, and it, you didn't give it one either. What, what, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that one? Maybe not too much. <sighs> that one's really unfortunate because I was looking forward to it, and it oh. is beautifully shot. I think the issue that people are going to have with this and that I certainly had is, is that in terms of storytelling, it is extremely sparse hmm. uh, and kind of inaccessible in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't really get a strong emotional connection to these characters because it is very unclear about uh, who these characters are in the grand scheme of things. It's said in Mississippi, should say uh, if all if all is a woman uh, if all is a, yeah. a woman named uh, I don't uh, a woman named Mac apparently Mac, yep. played by Sheila Team I don't know if you saw the Woman King Fred she's yes. really good in the Woman King yeah and the problem with the movie is really that it kind of jumps back and forth between uh, Mac's early years growing up in Mississippi in the 1970s and present day uh, where she's a woman in her 20s she works at a grocery store um, and the movie is really kind of structured in a way where we check in on her every so often in a sort of stream of consciousness way that makes it difficult to really follow along scenes are very long there is literally and this is the scene that critics kind of focus on Mm -hmm. there is a scene where characters just embrace for three minutes and i think it must have really been three minutes and they don't say a word to each other Mm -hmm. and it's all kind of meant to be sort of abstract and aesthetically beautiful and it's kind of meant to draw you in just by the sounds and the landscapes the description that i've seen a lot for this kind of movie is tone poem and to me that's just not really a very appealing way to tell a story because i found it very hard to get invested in these characters and what was happening at any Mm -hmm. given point there will people there will be people who will champion this who will really enjoy it um it definitely wasn't for me uh, and if you're somebody who's not really into abstract filmmaking, I have a hard time believing that this is necessarily going to find a big audience. Um, I'm fairly certain you wouldn't particularly care for it either. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm a little more uh, aligned with you in taste in that regard, and that maybe that that kind of like experimental stuff is not my cup of tea though i think you're right in that there are going to be some champions of it again uh not a perfect metric but on rotten tomatoes it's currently at 100 with 19 reviews so i'm sure some people will jump on at some point that aren't as high on it but like it's it's it seems like it, it seems to be doing well with critics so far and i i, I want good things for sheila team so i'm happy if it, if it if it really catches on i should also mention uh produced by uh barry jenkins and adele romanski mm-hmm. amongst others so kind of his team you know they just they, they just uh put out uh, after sun this year which uh you know uh 
was uh, really well received as well. I think he's they're starting to produce a little more and things that Barry himself does not direct. Last thing I have, I, I saw that you didn't see was Cat Person, which I think was one of the buzzier titles going in. Uh, it's adapted from like a 2017 New Yorker article where a woman wrote about a, a relationship she had with an older man at some point. And the rabbit hole that went down when maybe he turned out to not be everything she thought he was going to be, but they decided, hey, let's make a movie about this. Uh, it stars Amelia Jones, who some might know from uh, Coda, which, you know, just fresh off of winning. She's fresh off of being the lead of a Best Picture nominee. And uh, as, as that point of entry uh, protagonist uh, Best woman. Best Picture winner. Best yes. Picture winner. Oh, yeah. Sorry. If I, did I say nominee. Yeah. I share yeah. You can't short Well, nominee too, I guess, but it also won. <laughs> yeah. It's a nominee that, that eventually won. Uh, and it also stars Nicholas Braun, who people may know as Cousin Greg from Succession, though he's branched out a little bit and done some movies, was in Zola. Um, and uh, I, I think it, it, they, they decided they would make this a feature-length thing as opposed to just a short story by saying, like, all right, we're going to you know, focus on some of the perils of modern dating. And she has a long text relationship with this guy, and they eventually meet up and have some sort of a courtship and uh, maybe it doesn't. And she, again, she, within the movie, I think she is 19 or 20 and this guy is 33 though. She doesn't quite realize how old he is at first. Uh, and he seems to be like, you know, saying a lot of the right things and, you know, being kind of charming over text message and when they meet in person, but like, you know, there, there are slowly signs that, Hey, maybe, maybe she shouldn't be as involved with this guy. And I think it, the kind of warning signs that, you know, ring true in a way in the movie, you know, puts them on display in a very interesting way, but like, it's a two hour, I'd say it's like a, I think it's like a two hour movie. And I think the movie might've been a five-star movie if it had just ended at the hour 20 minute mark. It's just been a lean 80 minutes. And I, I, and I very much am in with the critical consensus on this, where it seemed like Fred might've diverged a little bit on uh, all dirt road states assault. There is a couple of funny letterbox reviews. I saw um, one of them from David Sims, uh, who you know is a writer for a movie movie writer for the Atlantic and one of the co-hosts of the oh god why am I drawing a blank oh the blank check the blank check podcast and uh, he, his review is there hasn't been a third act collapse this bad since Clippers Rockets 2015 and I almost agree like it, I I might have already like uh, etched out a spot for it in my top ten if it just didn't do the final act of this movie it's almost I almost recommend it just so people can see how far off the rails it goes uh, okay, yeah well that's it, quite an it, endorsement it, actually now I want to see this. Yeah, I feel like I saw a couple reviews that like actually like they might have just been like other user reviews on Letterboxd, but it just takes a turn where it's like there was a lane for it to stay in. And actually, you watch Succession, uh, right? And let me yes. put it this way to you. Do you remember the moment? And it's funny because the last movie we're going to talk about involves an actress that is involved in this scene. Do you remember the scene in Succession in season two where Cousin Greg is talking to Comfrey, who is like uh, this, you know, PR kind of flack that Kendall has hired to follow him around. She's played by uh, Dasha Nekrasova. And Greg has been like trying to figure out a way to like hit on her in his awkward Cousin Greg way for like basically the better part of the season. And at some point he'd also told Kendall he had an interest in him. And Kendall's like, off, you're, you're off, that's off limits. You can't do that. And at some point when he like awkwardly goes up to her after Kendall has had this conversation with him and right after she has had a conversation with Kendall where she puts him in like, he, he just says, you got to, sorry, like you got to do this ridiculous task just because I'm being ridiculous because I'm Kendall and I'm drunk and high half the time. And she's just very down on herself. And I think it involved like buying, like uh, storing like a hundred lunchboxes in her, in her like one bedroom studio apartment or something. And it was something ridiculous and she's upset about with him and Greg walks up to her and she complains a little bit about him. And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I was, uh, I was going to ask you, um, well, um, never mind. Kendall said, don't do that. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. She's like, what, 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 what did Kendall say? And he's like, well, I was going to like, you know, see if you want to go out sometime. And he said not to, so don't just forget about it. And she's like, no, I'll do it. And 
that 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 scene created some like discussion online. Like, was cousin Greg being awkward or was cousin Greg being manipulative? And it, I think that's why he was very good casting for this movie. And that is a gray area where this movie should have been content to live in a similar gray area to something like that. Cause the modern dating and the different concerns that women have, there are a lot of gray areas that come with that. And I think that's a really rich territory to explore. If you have a writer that kind of knows what the perils of modern dating are, let's just say that movie didn't want to live in the gray area. And I think that's where it goes South. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, last movie that both Fred and I saw was an interesting one to talk about because you know, uh, we're a year removed from Jane Campion, a very accomplished filmmaker, winning Best Director for uh, Power of the Dog. And uh, when I was trying to figure out what to watch, and I was just like kind of for, at Sundance, I was like going off of the most recognizable actresses. Fred's like, oh, by the way, you might want to see who uh, this Alice Englert's, Englert's mother is. I was like, what? I'm like, oh, Jane Campion has a daughter that's like an aspiring filmmaker and actress. And uh, so she has a movie called Bad Behavior. That stars uh, Jennifer Connelly, uh, Ben Wishaw, Dasha Neckersover herself, like I was just talking about. And and Alice Englert herself, she plays Jennifer uh, Connolly's daughter. Uh, Jennifer Connolly plays like, I guess, like a formal, a former like model and uh, actress, kind of former child actress, kind of who, you know, is off to a spiritual retreat in Oregon. Her daughter, played by Englert, is a um, is a stunt performer who is off in New Zealand. And, you know, they're kind of doing their own thing, have a strained relationship. And at some point, you know, uh, let's just say some events kind of bring them back together. And Jennifer Connelly's character, her name is uh, is Lucy. She's on this kind of self-enlightenment thing, but it just, you know, it, it, there's clearly something very strained between her and Dylan, who's the daughter played by Alice Englert. And, you know, there's this guy, kooky guy played by uh, Ben Wishaw again that's kind of helping run the retreat. And it's just... I don't know, Fred. This movie is a weird movie. I mean, I think I, I, I'm having, I'm still processing it a little bit. You, you're better at getting your thoughts out, writing your really thoughtful reviews. I think you were able to kind of explain it a little better. But like, is there a movie? Is there a version of this movie you think you could have been really into? Is I think how I'll ask the question. So I think there are individual parts of the movie that work fine. Um, there are some scenes that are striking. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two in particular that come to mind. One is called the newborn exercise uh, that Ben Wishaw makes his patients do at his retreat. Uh, that is certainly a memorable scene, for better or worse. And I think it's pretty well written and directed in the sense where you can just about see how some self-help guru would come up with a ridiculous uh, exercise <laughs> like that. Uh, there is another scene that I think could become memeable if people actually decide to watch this movie. Uh, that involves um, Jennifer Connelly reacting to a character saying the dangerous words, uh, sometimes I feel like I have nothing to say, which just triggers a fantastic response from her and by far the most memorable scene of the movie, hmm. um, which I thought was like, it comes out of left field, but I actually think that Ellis Englert meant that scene to be funny and comedic. So I actually burst out laughing when it happened. And I do think there are occasional moments like that, but I think the two big problems that the movie has are Alice Engler just doesn't have enough uh, of a well-developed sense of comedy uh, for the humor to consistently land in this, uh, which I think is fatal uh, when you're mm -hmm. trying to make a dark comedy like this. Uh, and the second thing is that the overall structure of the movie just doesn't really lend itself to explore its themes especially well. Uh, I think it gets better in the second half about it because you can kind of see where the movie is headed. 
Um, although it does raise some concerning questions about uh, where Alice Englert is getting her inspiration from. And I sincerely hope it's not from her own relationship with her mother. Yeah. <laughs> but um, be that as it may, I do think that there was some promise in the second half um, to at the very least find some emotional footing. But I think the movie on the whole is just too chaotic and too uh, strangely structured to really be considered a success. I don't think it's a total write-off like some critics have suggested, but uh, this wasn't it. Yeah, I, I think you maybe could have done away with everything that happened in New Zealand, and maybe that would have made it a little more focused. And there's also a couple of diversions about all the stateside stuff, and it's like if you just like strip all that out and have her have Lucy, you know, and if, if maybe focus on like what Lucy has going on at this retreat. I don't want to say how that ends, but focus a little more on that, and then just like what happens when you put her in, um, put her and her daughter in the same room. Maybe you have something. It just felt like there was a lot going on, and I don't know if she necessarily was able to harness all of it. And like, and I kind of agree with you. I didn't laugh as much as I think anywhere near as much as I think she wanted me to. Some funny moments in isolation, but for the amount of like odd, kooky, goofy stuff in here, I probably should have laughed more than I did. And I don't have, and but I what I will say, like you said, other promising things. Like I, I, I mean, I, I, I was, I, I, I guess I was happy that Jennifer Connelly got to sink her teeth into something like this. When she had like the most thankless part of Top Gun Maverick, a movie which I love that like will be in my top 10, but like you really probably shouldn't have had any of most of the scenes that she was in because it's just me having to buy that Tom Cruise has sexual chemistry with anyone. That's just a tall order. I don't really think she's any, I don't really think there's anything she could have done about that, but like it's here we are. It's like here, it's like, you know, she gets to play like a, a, a more well thought out character that like, you know, yeah, she's behaving, she is behaving very badly, but like she does it in a very convincing way. So I appreciated that for her. And it's just, I wish the rest of the movie had held together a little bit better, but like, you know, I think next year, like, I mean, I, I, I'm just going to like, you know, I'll do a deeper dive. I, I don't, I, I, I might, I might, even if I had taken my time more and like deciding what I was going to buy at Sundance, maybe I wouldn't have done this and I would have done theater camp. That's one that seems like it might've been a little more up my alley with a lot of young actors I like. Uh, but like, you know, it's whatever, you know, hit or miss. And that's just what it's going to be when you go to a film festival. Like, you know, we're talking about like, you know, you're getting, you're getting into stuff before you've really seen a reaction. So if you're just kind of going off of town involved and, uh, in, in a synopsis, like this movie had that going for it. It's just, you know, maybe didn't, you know, totally click. So, um, yeah, and yeah. I don't regret getting a ticket for this particular one because mm -hmm. again, my reasons for it were solid. I think Jennifer Connelly is a great actress. Mm -hmm. I think Ben Wishaw is usually pretty funny. I liked him as Q in the Bond movies. Mm -hmm. uh, I even thought he was pretty amusing here, but, um, yeah, that's kind of the thing about attending or virtually participating in a film festival. Uh, sometimes you just have to take risks uh, and sort of guesstimate what movie may or may not appeal to you. And uh, I mean, three out of five movies that I watched, I really enjoyed. So that's a pretty good ratio, I would say on the whole. Um, because remember, professional critics have to watch 25, 30 of these. And hmm. they have to sit through some that they probably really don't enjoy whatsoever. So could be worse. You at least get to sort of pick your battles uh, if you don't get paid to do this stuff. Yeah, did I, did I see did I see something else with Ben Wishaw in it too recently, or did was it just that he had maybe he just had a couple things at Sundance? That was it. There's this movie. Uh, yeah, he's in the new Iris Sachs movie, and I just haven't I, I didn't get to that. That was also at Sundance passages. Um, yeah, good for Ben Wishaw, staying busy. Uh, I don't know, Fred, Fred. Before we get out of here, anything else you want to recommend? Or I think we just did a pretty big recommendation section. But like, anything else you want to recommend that people will be able to watch sooner, that, as opposed to all these other things that we didn't really know when they're coming? Anything else you have on your mind? Uh, just very quickly, uh, Logan and I recently started watching Shrinking, 
uh, on Apple. Hmm. That's the new uh, Jason Segel and Harrison Ford TV show. You guys, uh, you guys are you guys are pretty loyal Apple people. Yeah, no, I actually think that it really uh, is one of the uh, strongest streaming platforms now. Mm-hmm. Um, like most of their shows are really good and well thought out with uh, really high caliber actors. And actually, Harrison Ford is really funny in this show. Like his like dry humor delivery really makes a lot of these episodes. So uh, you know, I, I kind of that, that 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 might sell me on giving it a shot because like I, I I some people I trust weren't as big on it, but like. I, you, do, you, do you remember the press store he and uh, Ryan Gosling did for Blade Runner 2049? It's like Harrison yes. Ford's Harrison Ford's persona is just so grumpy uh, as, as his baseline disposition. And like he clearly just like really bonded with Ryan Gosling on that movie. And just like they clearly like cracked each other up. And it was like incredibly charming. I'm like, all right, like I know you have like something beneath that surface, Harrison Ford. I want to see it because uh, clearly at least Ryan Gosling gets it out of you. So, you know, if like this is any kind of thing where he actually got to like flex those comedy muscles, which he just had not been asked to do for a long time in anything. And uh, I, maybe I, I want to see what that looks like actually when it's, he's doing it more intentionally than Ryan Gosling, just like making him laugh so hard. He can't help himself. Yeah. And the other thing uh, we started watching poker face uh, on Ooh. Peacock. I recommended that last time already. That's the new Ryan Johnson show. Uh, now that I've actually seen uh, the first episode, I can say it is pretty well done. Uh, has a large list of guest characters. Um, uh, Johnson clearly really enjoyed working on this project. He's been tweeting about it and giving really interesting detailed breakdowns hmm. uh, about his involvement in each episode. And uh, he's been giving shout outs to some of the guest actors he worked with and uh, some of the crew members he really enjoyed uh, making this with. Uh, so this clearly was a passion project for him. It's not just one of those TV shows where you uh, slap yeah. someone's name on it uh, to sell it to viewers. Uh, like his handwriting is all over this. Yeah, so really, if you're a Ryan Johnson fan, you enjoy the Knives Out movies, uh, definitely give that a try as well. Yeah, it does seem like he and Natasha Leone are kind of creative partners in it to some extent. Uh, and that, that'll be my next order of business. I don't really have anything new to recommend at this point after what we've talked about. I'm, I'm like working my way through like finishing. It's just, it's hard to motivate yourself to like watch stuff, like long, catch up on all, a lot of series on Hulu. If you have behind a few seasons and you got to deal with the commercials on there, if you don't have the version of who without commercials so i might try to finally get caught up on it's always sunny in philadelphia i'm halfway through season 14 uh there's 15 seasons and it's just like i once i'm done with that i think poker face is my next order of business season 14 is sunny not great season 13 really good for the 13th season or something i don't know what 15 is going to hold but like you know you should support that show it's really cool that they still do it fred where can people find you on letterbox yes please follow me on letterbox the uh, my name uh, on there is uh, Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. I already posted all of my Sundance reviews. Mm-hmm. So if you want some more detailed thoughts on the movies that I watched, which may be coming out later this year, uh, feel free to give me a follow and read those. Yeah, always appreciate it when people read my content. So uh, I'd be very thankful for that. There you go. As usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. I uh, and podcast Twitter is at Real Movie Pod. Podcast email is the Real Movie Pod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, I, I I'm guessing at that at the, at that point, the next order of business might be a podcast of some sort on of uh, a knock out the cabin. So uh, the MI Channel on movie. So I, I think that's probably next. I don't really know what's getting released after that. Like I'm going to see 80 for Brady. I don't think it's going to be. <laughs> I was about to ask. I, 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 I don't. Doing. I don't think it's going to be podcast worthy. But I have enough friends here that are genuinely excited about it. That, like I think I'm going to go. But like I don't think it's one that I'm going to like take the time to do a podcast on. So it's really just knock at the cabin and then. Uh, you know, maybe we're maybe we're it's Ant Man time at that point. But like, I got I got a lot of other editing and posting to do before then. So, as usual, thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks to Fred for joining me. We will see you next time.